Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Mary. In 1975, Mary's husband, Rich, and two crew set sail from Gisborne to Dunedin in a ketch. However, he never arrived for a stop-off in Christchurch as he had planned. Forty-five years later, Mary tells the story of his disappearance and her and their four children's lives afterwards. Mary, what was your and Richard's plan in respect of the sailboat? The sailboat was going to be our new life. We were, were, um, and I don't know whether it would have worked or not, but we were thinking of living on it. But with four young children, anyway, that was our plan. Yeah, And we were so looking forward to it. And so where was the boat? The boat was in Gisborne. Right. Um, It had to move because Watties were taking over the the yacht club basin in in, in Gisborne and wanted it for their frozen foods section. And so everybody had to move their yachts away. And so his plan was to bring it down to to Dunedin? Yeah, well, he had no choice. Right. And was there going to be a stop-off on the way? Well, yeah, there was in Christchurch, yeah. Was he an experienced sailor? Oh, yes. Tell me a bit about his, his experience. Oh, well, um, he was, um, oh. Did he have a long-standing passion for boats? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I'm just trying to think of the, of the, um, name of it, the, um. Yeah, no, he was always connected with boats, always. So he went up to collect the boat. Yes. And who was going to accompany him on his trip down? He had two crew that he hired. They were <coughs> they were a professional crew. Right. And um, one of them had surveyed the east coast of the North Island for the Admiralty, and the other one was an able seaman of about 30 years' experience. So they were experienced guys, yeah. Now, you mentioned that he and a colleague had decided how they would fetch their respective boats, and the colleague had a boat too. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I I won't name any names because that could be embarrassing for them. Well, not that it should be. But they were both teachers, and so there was the gap of the May holidays and the August holidays, and they threw a coin and Rich got the August, and um, the other guy got the May, and his went through beautifully. 
and so he was yeah he 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 was very what could you call it he was very not broken hearted but he was very aware of our situation and that his boat had come down fine and ours hadn't right <coughs> so when Rich planned this trip down, there was a plan that he would stop off in Christchurch and yes. you would go and meet him. Yes, and, I, and the kids and I, would we would travel from Christchurch to Dunedin on the boat, yeah. Right, and so you went up to Christchurch? Yes. And what happened? Nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. We sat in Christchurch for as long as we could, and I can't remember how long it was, but we had schooling and and work and everything else so we had to eventually leave without him arriving and um, <coughs> Christchurch um, kept saying oh it'll be fine it'll be fine you know and the ferry guys had promised to look out for it and yeah and um, nobody was particularly alarmed how old were the kids around about that time oh gee. Oh, excuse me, Jeff was about 14, Rachel was about 7. So I went from 7 to 14. Right. And so what did you do? You waited and then when he didn't turn up? We had to go back to Dunedin. Right. And wait there. Now you said other people weren't alarmed. What about you? At what point did you Well, I was alarmed. Um, I'm sitting in Dunedin and Mm. nobody's taking any notice of me. I remember in the end... <clears throat> and it will be on. Uh, Jeff has um, documented all the stuff, but I actually ended up sending a um, a telegram to the prime minister saying, "Please, will you look for my husband?" <laughs> or words to that effect, because nobody was doing anything. And in those days, nothing was ever much done, because not many people did that sort of thing. So there was no. Um, immediate alarm or anything like that. So had did the boat have a life raft? Oh, yes. yes. And had Rich and the crew managed to survive, how long could they have survived for? Yeah, well, they hired, they hired a life raft um, because then we could afford the crew because we had to pay them. Um, so the life raft was hired... Um, if three survived, then they had they had a month. Um, if two survived, they had three months, and if one survived, they had six months, and that was food and water and yeah. So what happened after six months? <laughs> I disintegrated. Right. Yeah, those those were my those were my yeah. So you remained hopeful until six months when you realised that there was no chance of anyone having survived. Yeah, not after that length of time, yeah, in in those sort of waters and, yeah. So when you say you disintegrated, tell me what that... Well, I gave up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was... Yeah, my... my yeah, my thoughts had gone. My and my only problem was how to tell my kids what I knew. 
was happening. Did you seek help, such as counselling? There was nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, there was no. There was no victim support there was no there was absolutely nothing I was actually sent to the um, outpatients at Wakari Hospital uh, for help and I mean they didn't know what they were they, they, they didn't know what they were doing the guy just sat in a chair and looked at me for half an hour you know <laughs> But I remember he was replaced. I, I remember every time I left there, I, I made a mess of things because I was crying and praying the car. And, yeah. But um, I remember <coughs> the last time I went, I thought, no, I'm not doing this anymore because the kids would be crying and it just wasn't, it wasn't doing them any good. And that was why I was going to get my kids sorted, you know. And um, <clears throat> so this was going to be the last time I was going, but there was a different guy there, and he must have sensed what I was feeling because he turned to me, and what he said I've never forgotten was that it's like a scar. It's always there, but after a while it doesn't hurt. And that is so true. I mean, it's always there. It's always going to be there. My rich, my life, my kids... Yeah. And you found that quite comforting, knowing that eventually there'd come a time when, although there was a sky, it didn't hurt. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was the that was the nice part. The first, the also the nice part was when I I used to take the kids to to the park, and I used to take them here and there and everywhere, and get them off to school and do this. But there was no there was no enjoyment in it. There was no. But I can remember one day coming home and I had actually enjoyed myself. And I thought, well, I'm, 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 getting, <laughs> I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think actually happened to Rich in the boat? Well, I don't know. There's lots of, there's lots of um, things going around. I think the most likely scenario is that they were, um, they were upturned by a whale. Like a whale can can upturn the the boat just went down, so that there was no chance of them coming to the surface or you know, um, and also that's the worst weather down the east side of New Zealand is one of the worst sailing areas in the world. Yeah, had they ever recovered a wreck or any no, debris? No. This is this is the awful part. Is that there's absolutely nothing. Nothing, not a bit of wood, not a not a, a scarf, not a pair of underpants, nothing. Yeah. Did they search for the boat? <laughs> uh, it took them a long time, and when they did decide to search for the boat, they had absolutely no idea where to search because there was such a wide area. I mean, going from the Kermadex down to the Arctic Ocean. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. But they did, I must admit, they, they formed a thing, the Friends of Veronica. <coughs> Veronica being? The name of the boat. Right. 
And um, sorry, I should have told you that. <laughs> and um, they did a bit of they did a bit of searching. They were they were wonderful, but it was too late. I mean, it was there was just too much sea area to cover, and of course they didn't have all the mod cons that they've got now. So it was yeah. Was that in response to your letter to the prime minister? <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to think so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I was making, in my own way, I was making a bit of noise because I had to. Somebody had to. Um, the um, and I can't remember what it was called. I think it was a blue Peter, blue some. There was a form that any yachty leaving a port filled out, and it was forwarded on to the next port that he was going to. And I can remember saying to them, "Have you received your whatever it was a blue? I can't remember now." And they didn't know what I was talking about. They'd never seen one, never heard of one. And that was that was that was what I struck all the time. Could you have dissuaded Rich from buying this boat and taking this journey? And if I'd wanted to, I guess I could have, but I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. I was, I was enamoured of the whole thing myself. I mean, I was doing a, a coastal navigation course. So you were on board, so to speak, with the whole thing. Oh, plan. yeah, oh, definitely <laughs> on board. Yep, I had my own bunk sorted and everything, yeah. <laughs> now, after he didn't return, you were left with four small children ranging from 14 to 7. What gave you the strength to carry on? Oh, look, honestly, I wonder that myself. And I think, well, it's <clears throat> mainly because the kids were so normal. I mean, I still had to get them up in the morning, get them dressed, make their lunches, send them off to school to pick them up from school. I had to go on school trips with them. I had to do this and that and the next thing. But I did it like a zombie. I was... I was just not interested. I did it because they were my children and I had to. But, um, yeah. And how did they respond to their dad going away and just never coming back? Oh, they were... Yeah, they were funny. Um, I ended up with each of them in my bed at night crying for dad, except for Shamine. She was a worry. She... All of a sudden, her father didn't exist. You know, that was it. He was gone. But um, yeah, we all we all hung together, hoping that the, the the miracle would happen. You know, but it never did. Did there come a time when the kids realised that Dad wasn't coming back? Well, I guess there was, but it was. A slow realisation is most probably the best way of putting it. Um, it was something that we... something that was something that we clung together for but didn't really think would happen. Yeah. 
And what was the effect of never having a body or a boat or anything? That was the devastating part. That was the that was the killer. Um, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, we've tried all sorts of different things. We've planted a tree and we've, you know, held a. a yeah, we've yeah we've done all sorts of things, but it hasn't been. It, it's we've had nothing to. So use as a base, I suppose you could put it. So you described Rich as the love of your life. Did you ever manage to find love again after you lost Rich? No, not really. I tried. Because being young, I mean, I was only in my 30s. But it wasn't... Yeah, no, it was was hopeless. I was... Yeah. So what was like, life like after Rich disappeared? Here you were beginning a dream, a new life, an exciting adventure, and that just disappeared. Do you know, I, it was funny because I was thinking you, this was your comeuppance because you were so self-confident, you had it all taped and you knew exactly what you were doing and you were going places and... And um, everything in the garden was lovely. Um, and life ain't like that, mate. <laughs> That's how I felt for a long time. Yeah. And a life without Rich was very different to a life with Rich? Oh, hell yes. Excuse my language, yes. So what was life after Rich like? Um, life after Rich was like... It didn't, it didn't matter that I was... <coughs> that I was in the position I was in. What mattered was the fact that I was a solo mother with four children and I was treated accordingly and some of some of the treatment was disgusting, yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Well, um, f- for one thing, I had nowhere to live. Um, so the um, state advances, as they were called then, which was the state services, I'm not sure what they're called now, um, offered me accommodation, but every month they would write me a letter and say, "You realise that this is only temporary accommodation, and um, you have to find, you know, proper accommodation." And this is with four young kids, and um, every time that letter arrived, I <coughs> went back to square one again. Yeah, and. Also, it was quite funny, um, my different friends' reaction, too. That was something that I I was thinking of the other night and thinking it was a a lot of my friends never invited me to their places. All of a sudden, I was the single woman, and it it was quite marked, the... Yeah, partly their attitude... But if they, if there were a couple, I had a couple of good friends who were great. And if anybody had known me then, they would have, and I mean, known me properly, would have known that I would never, ever have even looked at their husbands. 
Didn't need it, didn't want it. <laughs> I just wanted my Richard. And financially, how did you manage to support these four kids? I worked. I had I I was working when it happened. I had a position with the with the government department because they were the only ones that were paying equal pay at the time. And um I I did stop work because I was feeling so decrepit. But I just couldn't afford not to work. I mean, you know, I went to get Jeff a pair of shoes and there was something like $70, $80. And on the benefit wasn't much more than that. So I realised that I would have to work, so I had to work, so I worked, yeah. And the kids were pretty good, I must admit. Did you live in the same area that you'd lived previously or did you have to move? Um, we... We we had to move, yes, we had to move. But um, <clears throat> then they held an inquest because um, there was a lot of publicity over the whole thing and I think f- a few of the um, bigwigs realised that they'd, they'd blown it, they'd made a mess of it or whatever. And so they held an inquest which meant that the money that we paid for the boat and all the expenses were released. And so I was, after a few scraps with my lawyer, and I um, managed to buy a house, yeah. And that was down the peninsula, yeah. And even then that was fraught with... Because my lawyer ended up in bed with a flu or something and um, I said to his secretary, I said, well, look, I need to know because this guy's got another person wanting to buy the house who's got a cash offer as well and I need to know that I've got the... Well, you know, if you can't wait until tomorrow, then tough. And I, I can remember slamming the phone down going, shh, just as my boss came in, he said, what's the matter? And I told him, and he said, don't worry about it. And he came back ten minutes later and said, it's all sorted. You've got your finance. So we moved in. But that was fun as well because the day we moved in, the police arrived at my place, two guys. And my heart sank to my boots. I thought, oh, my God. But it turned out that the guy across the road was not very happy about the fact that we had a German shepherd and he'd complained to the police about it, that it might attack his boys. But that was that was my life from then on, was, was every so often the police would arrive um, and I would just go, you know. They'd found a body. They needed the dental records. They'd, yeah. Now, Mary, when I came to visit you in your lounge, mm. there was a picture on the wall of a oh, yes. of a lighthouse and big rocks and a crashing sea. Was it coincidental that that's the picture you choose to have in your lounge? Yeah, well, that was 
the guy that I and I, I won't say his name because it would be it most probably won't be embarrassing for him, but I would hate to put him in a position. Um, <clears throat> he felt so bad about the fact that his boat had come through and mine hadn't that he took me into his into his I don't know studio and said, "Pick a pick a picture, and you can have it." And that's the and one. That's, you chose. And that's the one that I chose. Yeah, yeah. Mary, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. You've survived the disappearance of your husband and you've raised four fabulous children on your own in a way that I'm sure Rich would be very proud. You know, I've got a very close bond with them. And next week, I'll be interviewing Rach, your daughter, who was nine at the time, and she'll tell the story from her perspective. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Cafe Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.